we may find that in fact we removed more savable victims by taking this kind of approach because we've improved the survivability for those victims. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me today for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the information on a firefighting topic you need in about 20 minutes. Now let's get started. This week we may make some people angry. We're talking stretcher fires, risk, and slicers. If you're a probie, slicers is an acronym for how to address a fire. It stands for size up, locate the fire, isolate the flow path, cool from a safe distance, extinguish, rescue, and salvage. Today's guest says that by following those steps in that order, you'll have a less risky fire ground. But what about those who advocate for RECOVS? That's rescue, exposure, confine, extinguish, overhaul, ventilate, and salvage. That acronym puts rescue first, which, while it may not be as safe for the firefighter, suggests that saving lives is the priority in a structure fire. But can using slicers result in more lives saved? How is that possible? I'll ask that of Robert Absek. He retired as a battalion chief with the Chesterfield, Virginia Fire and EMS Department after 26 years of service. He's instructed fire, EMS, and hazmat courses at the local, state, and federal levels, including 10 years with the National Fire Academy. He writes a blog, and he's a published author. And Robert Evsek joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3. It's a pleasure to be here, Scott. Thank you for the uh, for the invitation to come on back. It's great to have you back. So today we're about to open a big old can of worms because we're talking about risks that can be avoided. And you call aggressive interior attacks the default mode of fire suppression. Are you saying that firefighters go interior too often? I'm I'm saying that firefighters are going interior. Uh, it's the default mode for for fire companies, and you know we're we're learning more and more, particularly with with the the May Day situations that occur. You know it's so important to do that 360 degree assessment of the building before you decide on what is what is going to be the the appropriate fire suppression tactic to use given given the structure given the the fire conditions you know we've we've got technology like like thermal imaging cameras that that you know were unheard of before and and we we really need to be using that to determine is aggressive interior attack is that the right tactic for this situation so why do so many fire departments Use that as a default. Well, I I I have to I have to give credit to uh, Dr. Bert Clark, you know, who was at the National Fire Academy for so many years, and you know, Bert has has 
uh, has postulated the the firefighter DNA is is fast, close, and wet. <laughs> get there fast, get close to the fire, and put the wet stuff on the red stuff. And you know that that goes back to the days of of fire brigades and fire buckets, and you know you had to get close. You know, fire bucket only that water only went so far. But, you know, we've we've not, in my opinion, we have not been able to get away from that. And particularly, like I said, to really understand what's going on with the structure before we start committing people to to interior attacks, you know, we, we keep saying, especially with what we've now learned about firefighters and cancer and the exposure to the to the chemicals and the chemical compounds and carcinogens that are present in the smoke of today's structure fires, you know, more and more people are calling fires hazmat incidents. Well, then it's time we start applying some some hazmat principles such as don't be in such a hurry figure out exactly what's going on with the situation and make sure that you're that you're using those hazmat principles of time distance and shielding limit the amount of time that's necessary to get the job done make sure you're wearing your your PPE and your SCBA whenever you're you're in the hazard area and as soon as you can, put distance between you and the situation by getting out of your PPE, going through through uh, uh, hand washing and, and skin wiping of the neck and face areas. You know, these are things that need to be this. That needs to be the default mode. All right. I hear what you're saying. But at the same time, I've got a picture of that situation where the engine rolls up, the captain jumps off says to the nearest bystanders, is there anybody inside? And they say, no, there's not. But the captain still says we better search anyway because we see a car in the driveway. So they've now been told there's nobody inside, but they're still going to search. And lo and behold, they find somebody. And it sounds to me like what you're saying precludes a lot of searching because it might not be fruitful. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that... that you know, we have got tools and knowledge now, particularly when you look at the, at the fire research that's been done by uh, UL and, and NIST in regards to structure fires and the use of transitional fire attack, right? The, the getting, that, getting that first hose line into, into the as close to the fire room as possible, and uh, you know they've shown conclusively that it improves the survivability for anybody who's in that structure, and it starts rapidly reducing that risk to the firefighters who are going in to look for someone by conducting a search, by getting those interior temperatures down, by getting the the uh, the pressure inside of the structure reduced. So that it's not punishing firefighters, it's not pushing those those gases through every opening possible in their PPE, and and creating that that uh, that exposure that we're that we have grown very aware of when it comes to firefighters and cancer. 
how long do we wait to go in if we're going to start with a transitional attack and there may be people still in the building, children, whatever, who don't know any better, don't know how to get near a window or close the door to the room. How long do we wait to go in? Well, you know, the, the International Society of Fire Service Instructors has put together a tremendous program, Slicer, right? Right. Where it it, it really it really points out that it's 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 not a case of transitional attack or interior attack. It's it's a combination of of, of coordinating those efforts so that, that that first line is resetting the atmosphere inside that building while at the same time you you've got your folks ready to go at the front door so that they can make make an interior attack if that's if that's deemed what needs to be done to conduct a primary search okay that has to be the call of the incident commander based on again the 360 degree assessment of the structure What's, you know, are we able to get that transitional fire attack going quickly? And while that's happening, we're getting ready to go inside this structure. I, th I think I think that, that that sequence of events, if fire companies practice using slicer and and get accustomed to this is our approach. I think we will be much, much better off. So you're saying that there won't be any fewer rescues? I'm 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 saying that the science has shown us that by getting that initial stream into that the upper regions of that fire room or the room closest to the fire, and we see those temperatures drop from like twelve hundred degrees at the ceiling to five or six hundred degrees at the ceiling and and close to 200 or less at the floor we're increasing the survivability window for anybody who's in that structure all right and to me to me that is so important particularly when we look at how rapidly structures are reaching their flashover point because of, of the fuel loading that's in the modern residential structures and commercial structures with the synthetic fabrics, carpeting, furniture that, that's, that's made of synthetic materials or laminated woods, etc. I believe it's critical that, that we start plugging in the science and the, and the technology like thermal imaging cameras so that we've got a better idea of, number one, what we're dealing with. Number two, what's the approach that's going to work best on this situation and is going to give any victims who are in the building the greatest chance of survival until we can get to them. Okay, I hear you, but I'm going to continue to play devil's advocate for one moment and point out that Brian Brush is touring with Anthony Castro's telling seminar crowds that firefighters rescue something like nine victims a day in the U.S. And he's saying we should be promoting that. We should be proud of that. Do you think that speaking to crowds about that and getting them hyped up about rescues is something that's going to encourage them to want to rush in? I'm saying that if, if we are in fact removing 10 victims from from structure fires 
and and those people are getting medical attention and they are surviving those events that's a fantastic thing what i'm saying is that what we know about structure fires today what we know about fire behavior when we start making fire attacks based on the multitude of tests that have been done by UL and NIST and continue to do that are telling us what what actually happens inside of a structure when we start making fire attacks of different types that we can we we may find that in fact we we remove more savable victims by taking this kind of approach because we've improved the survivability for those victims by getting those interior temperatures down so dramatically. It sounds kind of, kind of counterintuitive, sort of like slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Well, you know, it, the thing is, when you're talking about the long, long traditions of the fire service and the fire service culture, you know, we we tend to be a bit slow on the uptake when it comes to adjusting to what's happening. Look at look at how long it took for the routine use of SCBA by firefighters to be to become the norm. That's true. There was a time when wearing one was considered a sign of weakness. The the wearing the wearing of PPE you know, pants and coats instead of rubber coats and three-quarter boots. How long did that transition take? I think I think that what we're looking at here is another necessary transition. That that again, this isn't this isn't something that I think I feel I believe. I'm looking at what what the what the science is is saying to me, particularly as a, a former hazmat. A specialist in my department and the things that we learned about the approach to responding to hazardous materials incidents, I think that we've got to incorporate this this increased level of knowledge into a better way, a safer way of of how we approach our what is the bread and butter response for most fire departments, and that is residential structure fires. All right, let's look at the very basics for a moment. Are firefighters in general still too lax about wearing their PPE? I don't think they're lax about wearing it when they go into the structure, but certainly what I'm what I'm seeing, you know, in as I look at the fire service trade journals online, as I see videos of, of fire scenes, etc., Many firefighters and officers are still too lax when it comes to getting out of that PPE when they are no longer in the hazard area. We see firefighters milling around on on uh, outside of the structure. Uh, they may have taken their SCBA and their coats off, but they've still got their helmet on. They've still got the hood around their neck. They've still got the pants on. Okay, which I heard a term just just the other day uh, used by uh, Stephanie White, who's a a firefighter technician with the Fairfax County Fire Department. She posted on LinkedIn yesterday uh, that uh, her husband, who's also a firefighter, asked her, why why are you guys still wearing your cancer pants? Hmm. 
when you're outside of the structure, when you're done firefighting? And it's a legitimate question. Again, you know, if you respond to a hazardous materials incident and you're you make an entry, you come out, you're not milling around wearing your chemical protective clothing. You you go through decon and you get out of it. You do the personal hygiene so that you're limiting your potential exposures. And I think that's the thing that, that we've really got to emphasize with, with firefighters and fire officers and, and incident commanders. Incident commanders have got to become unyielding when it comes to making sure that people are spending the, the, the shortest amount of time in their PPE. Do you think there's any possibility that the IC is thinking, well, I might need him again, and I don't want him to take time to get all redressed, so I'll just let him hang out like this? Well, you know, that's... A, I mean, is that... That's a, that's, that's a tough question, particularly when, when you look at the, the, uh, the, the staffing shortages that so many departments, you know, career, combination, volunteer are experiencing these days, you know, we've we've got we've got to take a good hard look at how long how long do we keep people in PPE? If that means, you know, a volunteer company has to call in more mutual aid, perhaps that's what they need to do. If it's a career company, you know, or a combination department, Bring, bringing people in to conduct that second part of the operation, if you will, all right? But, you know, the, the thing is, again, we, we know, especially, especially once they stop breathing cylinder air from their SCBA and they've now, they've still got their, their PPE on and that hood around their neck, you know, that stuff's already off-gassing. And they're inhaling that stuff. Hmm. You know, we we I I think we've we've got to get to the mindset that that the that the new normal is we don't we we can't do that. So let we we need to figure out how we get away from that. So you're saying that fire agencies need to start giving it some thought overall and decide what they want to do rather than just doing things the way they always have. Oh, ab absolutely. And, you know, the the thing is, we've many departments have, have put in, you know, the, the necessary standard operating guidelines or procedures, however you want to refer to them, you know, things like initial contaminant reduction. You know, you come out, we hose you down, we get that, we get that initial decontamination going, and they they may even have it in their SOGs and, and, and procedures that, you know, you get out of the gear, you go through medical rehab so that you get those contaminants off of your skin and your face and your neck. But those are transactional changes. Those those are the those are the small, low hanging fruit changes that we need to make. The bigger, harder decisions that we have to make involve transformational change. And that is, how do we get people to look at the big picture? How do we determine what are the big picture elements that we need to make changes to? And how do we get everybody's input and buy-in into what those changes have to look like and what they have to be? All right. We'll leave it there. It's a tough problem. 
Robert Avisek, thanks for talking with me today on Code 3. Once again, Scott, my pleasure, and, and thank you so much for the invite. And, uh, you know, I if 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 this sparks conversation and, and sparks discussion, man, I'm all for that. I'm all for that because that's how we get to that better place. And there's more about slicers, risk, and PPE on our website at code3podcast.com slash risky. And remember, if you find Code 3 to be valuable to your professional development, I'd like to ask that you make a pledge to keep this show going. $10 a month gets you access to the Code 3 Bull Sessions, where we post occasional extra material that didn't make the main show. Just head over to Code3Podcast.com slash support to make your pledge. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.